New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. The reigning paradigm of scientific inquiry is known as materialism, the notion that physical material, known as matter, is fundamental in the universe. Materialism assumes that matter produces consciousness and holds that the brain produces consciousness. Therefore, when your brain dies, your consciousness dies. However, there are scientists whose research points out that materialist science seems to overlook the shaky grounds on which its foundation sits. Not only are there logical and philosophical questions about whether a material brain produces consciousness, there are also serious scientific questions about the nature of reality. And these questions will serve as the focus of our dialogue today with our guest, Mark Gober. Mark Gober is a senior member of the Sherpa Technology Group in Silicon Valley, California, a firm that advises technology companies on mergers, acquisitions, and business strategy. He previously worked as an investment banker analyst in New York. Mark graduated magna cum laude from Princeton University and has collected and surveyed a large body of research of various scientific papers and books about consciousness, biological processes, psychic phenomena, near-death experiences, and quantum physics. An overview of this collection of research is contained in his book, An End to Upside-Down Thinking, Dispelling the Myth that the Brain Produces Consciousness and the Implications for Everyday Life. Join us for the next hour as we explore why consciousness is fundamental, non-local, and cannot be explained in terms of brain mechanisms with our guest, Mark Gober. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Mark, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. First of all, in that introduction, it seems like the job that you hold in your education would not indicate that you would be so interested in this field of thought and perception. So tell me, how did you get into this? Well, I agree with you. On the surface, there isn't much of a relationship. And it was in the summer of 2016, August 2016, is when I first heard a podcast that exposed me to these ideas. I wasn't looking for it. I was listening to health and business podcasts. And a woman came on named Laura Powers who talked about her psychic abilities 
and abilities to work with energies and things I had never heard about in any serious way. And I remember being interested by that conversation. And at the end of the conversation, Laura talked about her own podcast called Healing Powers, where she interviews other people who have had these experiences. So then I listened to Healing Powers. I would listen to it during my drive to work, to and from work. And I became very interested in the fact that there were many people who were independently describing a picture of reality that was totally counter to everything that I was taught. And I got to the point where I couldn't reason that all of them were delusional or lying, or at least I wanted to look into it. And then I started to look at the science and I got hooked. I spent about a year just doing nothing but researching. When I wasn't in the office, all I wanted to do was research. Because for me, it was a major shift in terms of how I thought about my own identity and reality. So I just wanted to understand it for myself. So it's kind of like Alice in Wonderland going down the rabbit hole. Exactly. That's what <laughs> I mean, it was like. like. Like really taking you into this whole other realm, so to speak, that was very different from that analytical, you know, materialistic uh, viewpoint that you had come from or that you were even working in. It was pretty disruptive. <laughs> because I had to rethink everything that I thought I knew. Everything I thought was a certain way, I realized maybe it's not that way. And how have I been living my life up until now? It's been based on that old paradigm. But if there's a new paradigm that, of reality that I've always been living in, then how should I be existing in the world? Right. What does it mean to be a human being? And that's why I was so drawn to it. Oh, my goodness. Well, that just reminds me, in, in your book, at some point in your book, and I know that I have— um, this somebody else that I interviewed recently has also spoken about this. So I wanted to read for our listeners something that I, I that really struck me and I think really gets to the heart of how we arrive at a whole new way of thinking, a whole new paradigm, especially like in science. So this is something that I, I want to read for our listeners, uh, which is... Um, about a physicist who was in the 1900s in Britain. Here, here it is. In April of 1900, the British physicist Lord Kelvin gave a speech to the Royal Science of London, which was at the time the most eminent scientific organization in the world. He stated his discipline had been so successful in unraveling the mysteries of the universe that physics was, for all intents and purposes, complete, except for two small clouds. Now, this is 1900. He said, all right, we got it all figured out. These persistent clouds of anomalies were two unexplained phenomena, which he downplayed as a couple of holes that needed to be filled in before having a complete understanding of the thermodynamic and energy properties of the universe. He dismissed them as non-problems, possibly due to mistaken interpretation of experimental data, or perhaps the problems would eventually be explained after making a few minor adjustments to existing theories. He famously proclaimed that physics was over, except for these two small clouds on the horizon. These clouds turned out to be the clues that led us to quantum theory and relativity theory. 
And just as Lord Kelvin saw, and this is my comment, just as Lord Kelvin's two clouds could not be explained by minor changes in physics in the 19th century, in the 21st century, what your book really, really grapples with um, is saying that we are grappling with an adequate explanation for such anomalies in the present materialistic view of the world as precognition and other psychic phenomena. And um, so I'd love for you to say, Mark, something about what science is going through right now, the possibilities. Here we are, 1900, that's where we were. Are we there again? I think we are, based on the amount of evidence that we have. When the shift will occur is still a big question, and I don't know when it will be. I decided to write the book because for me it was such a world-changing idea and I wanted to make the information available and also compile the anomalies in one place. I think we have more than two clouds. (laughs) (laughs) We have a lot of clouds. And to put it in one place, I think for someone who is an intellectually honest scientist, it becomes difficult to just sweep it under the rug. When scientists will open up to that and look in the telescope, so to speak, to use the analogy of how certain clergymen in Galileo's era didn't want to look in the telescope, I think we have something similar right now. So I I think uh, one of the scientists that many of us know is Carl Sagan. And before he died, he looked in the telescope and he left us with a question. Do you recall that question? Yes. So this was in his book, The Demon Haunted World. And it's a skeptical book in general. He's a, he was a, a great scientist, but he acknowledged that there are, were three areas that really intrigued him that were open questions. And it's somewhere deep in the back of the book. And the, the phenomena relate to the, the behavior of random number generators that can be affected by the mind. Very, very slight effects, but highly statistically significant, like a small cloud. Telepathy, so ex- examples where people are having a mental influence on someone else's thoughts, apparently, under conditions that are controlled by science, and also children who seem to have memories of a life that is not theirs, and it might be construed as a previous life. So those were things that Sagan even acknowledged as being of interest. Of interest. You know, uh, last night I was with Ken Pelletier, and uh, we'll be doing an interview with him coming up shortly, and he reminded me of the work of Yuri Geller, who was an Israeli psychic and who was interviewed on New Dimensions many, many years ago. And um, he reminded me of this experiment that was done uh, at Stanford where they put Yuri Geller in uh, a Faraday isolation, ta- uh, whatever it's called. Anyway, every, you know, it, nothing can get in or out. Yeah, a Faraday cage. A Faraday cage. That's it. Thank you. And then um, they had a bar of titanium in the cage, and that was all, and, and just or Yuri there. And they were watching him, and they asked him to then affect this, this titanium bar, you know. And uh, so he just kind of walked around it. They all, all these scientists were observing him, and he walked around it. And um, after about a half an hour, uh, the the bar broke into two, but it didn't just break. It's like the molecules. It turned out the molecules just sort of separated, 
and just became more dense on the two ends. It was just a very just mind-boggling for the scientists to see this. And I remember when Yuri was on the program, uh, he said, do you have something? And Michael, my partner, gave him the key to our apartment. And he bent the key to the apartment, and, and we didn't think about it. But when we got home, <laughs> we couldn't get into our apartment. <laughs> it was an, an odd, funny thing. But there it was. That's one of the things that that is happening that you talk about in the book, these, these different phenomena. So say something about that. What, what can you tell us? Sure. Well, two things on Yuri Geller in particular that I found really fascinating is that there's been controversy over whether he can actually do the things that he claims he can do. The CIA recently declassified documents that talk about the studies that were run out of the Stanford Research Institute run by laser physicists. And there's a document that I include in the book from 1973 that talks about Yuri Geller and his abilities and being in one of these cages where he was watched and he was able to perform psychically in ways that were unambiguous, to use their term. So this is an, an internal CIA document that's been declassified. This is an example, I think, of one of many. So the, the fact that this isn't an isolated case is really significant to me. The fact that there, that people can achieve these sorts of things where they are influencing physical matter with their mind, where they are able to communicate at a distance, where they are able to perceive at a distance, known as remote viewing or clairvoyance. It's really, to me, the confluence of evidence in these disparate areas, which points to for me, it's all about consciousness, to a new paradigm of consciousness and its relation to the brain. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about, uh, in a moment, the, the pyramid of, of scientific pyramid. I'm here with Mark Gober, and he's the author of An End to Upside-Down Thinking. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Mark Gober, and by the way, he spells his last name G-O-B-E-R, Mark Gober. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, markgober.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. He's the author of An End to Upside-Down Thinking, Dispelling the Myth that the Brain Produces Consciousness and the Implications for Everyday Life. Mark, uh, I w we're, I'd love for you to talk about, like, in the present materialistic scientific paradigm, you, you show a kind of pyramid 
with the bottom layer and, the, and then it, what goes the next layer and the next layer and the next layer. So how does that look as compared to a, the one that's related to what you were talking about? Sure. So the, these pyramids, I think, are very fundamental to the argument that I'm making. And I actually adapted them from Dr. Dean Radin, who's been looking at these things for over 40 years. And this is kind of what he concludes as well. The mainstream paradigm, which is what I grew up with and what I thought was real, is known as materialism. It says that about 13.8 billion years ago, there was a big bang that started the universe. And it filled the universe with physical material that we call matter. So that's the base of our pyramid. The base of reality is matter. Then with this big universe, you have lots of pieces of matter interacting, and we call those interactions chemistry. So the next layer is chemistry. So we started with matter. Now we have a universe that has chemistry. When you have enough random chemical reactions, chance tells us that we're bound to end up with a molecule that can replicate itself. That's like DNA. That leads to biology. We started with matter, then chemistry, now biology. Biology leads to organisms like a human being, which develop brains. So brain comes after biology. And then from the brain comes out consciousness. And when I say consciousness, we've spoken about this word a few times. It's a difficult one to define, but it's the way I think about it is it's our subjective inner experience of being alive. So when I say I am speaking to you, that I, that awareness, that is not a tangible thing, that's what I mean by consciousness. And it's something that you and I have and anyone listening to this conversation, we all have a consciousness. So it's there. And this materialistic perspective, which starts with matter, says that matter creates consciousness through a brain. That's the conventional perspective, which I and many others are challenging. So that when uh, the brain dies, consciousness dies. There, it doesn't survive death, so to speak. It's just something contained within the human organism. Exactly. And that has major implications for thinking about life. And I used to think that way, that consciousness comes from the brain, even though I wouldn't have asked that question. I thought it was just such a foregone conclusion that there's complex stuff happening in my skull, chemical reactions, and that's what's producing my awareness right now. I never thought to question it. So if you take the logic out, when the brain stops functioning, when those chemical reactions stop happening, then there is no consciousness anymore. The memories are gone, feelings are gone, emotions are gone. So is there any meaning in life? To me, the materialist perspective implies that there is no meaning at all beyond trying to rationalize. And that's how I used to think. I accepted that as the reality. Life doesn't have meaning, and I have to deal with it. And that's what our current paradigm is teaching. And you collect more and more material goods to make you happy, so to speak. What more can you do? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, you have a limited time here. One life, live it yeah. in this short amount of time. So it does kind of imply a sense of separation that I have a consciousness and so do you because we're separate organisms. They're not connected to each other. And there is a finite period during which that consciousness will exist. Now, if you change that paradigm, uh, what, what would it look like? And this is why the book is called An End to Upside Down Thinking. The pyramid that I described with materialism starts with matter at the base and consciousness at the very end. What I describe in the book is, is a paradigm in which consciousness is at the base. We leave everything else, physical matter, chemistry, biology, and even brains, but those all occur within consciousness. It is a flip of the prevailing paradigm at the most fundamental level.
So I, I, there's a quote that I, I use a lot now ever since reading your book, and I just I, I repeat this quote a lot. And this is from a very, very well-respected and uh, famous physicist, Max Planck. And in 1931, he says, I regard consciousness as fundamental. I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. We cannot get behind consciousness. Everything we talk about, everything we regard as existing, postulates consciousness. Now, it's just amazing to me that here this famous physicist says this, and then there are so many other scientists that just... They don't even look at that. They, they they don't even regard that. And then when you when you take something like um, let's say near death experience, where the brain where they they show that the brain actually shows that it's not functioning. There's nothing. There's no uh, whatever EKGs or whatever it is on the brain. They're showing no activity, and yet these people come back and report enormous happenings. So what is that? It's an important example, and there's a whole chapter devoted to near-death experiences because, like you say, what happens is that people report lucid memories during a time of extreme physiological trauma. And by that, I mean things like cardiac arrest, clinical death, the heart stops beating, there's no blood flowing to the brain, and yet a number of people, many people, report lucid memories during that time. Uh, There are studies even done by cardiologists. For example, Dr. Pim Van Lommel, who has a famous study that was uh, published in The Lancet, a well-respected medical journal, in which he looked at people or spoke with people who survived cardiac arrest. And the number of those people who can be resuscitated is on the rise these days because our medical technology is improving and we have more and more of these cases. But conventional materialistic thinking would say, how could there be a conscious memory let alone something that seems ultra-real, which is what the people describe, during a time in which the conditions of the physical body that you think would be needed for that are abolished. There's no functioning in the brain, and yet there's a lucid memory. And some of these people will can even report conversations happening in the surgical amphitheater. They're, they're reporting all sorts of things that they know happened and occurred, and which reminds me, of another idea, which I now this one was new to me when I uh, when I read your book, I I hadn't thought about this one before. It has to do with the function of the brain. The brain is being a a kind of filter that keeps us from seeing the full spectrum of things. But when that filter is released, let's say through psychedelics or through this near death. Then we have access to something else. Can please describe that to me? This is a really important point. I'm glad you raised it. It gets to the question of of how is it that the brain is related to consciousness? Because we know there's a relationship. If if someone gets in a car accident and has brain damage, we might see that person has memory loss. So we can see, look, you change the brain, you change the consciousness. Another example, you stimulate part of the brain. That let's say the part of the brain responsible for vision, that person might have a corresponding change in vision. So we know there is this very strong correlation between what happens to our brain and the type of conscious experience that we have. And because of that correlation, there has been an assumption that, oh, well, the brain is just producing consciousness. 
Now, why is that not sufficient, at least logically? And then we'll get into the science. Logically, it's not sufficient because we know correlation does not imply causation. Now, what's an example of that? Dr. Bernardo Castrup, who I mentioned a number of times in the book, gives a really simple analogy. Spell his name for people so they might look it yeah, up. Dr. Bernardo, last name Castrup, K-A-S-T-R-U-P, an amazing philosopher in this area. He says, imagine you have a fire and lots of firefighters show up. You have a larger fire, more firefighters. Very strong correlation between the size of the fire and the number of firefighters that appear. Do we conclude that the firefighters caused the fire? I think that's an, just a brilliant, brilliant analogy. It's brilliant. And, and that's what we think about with the brain. We say, oh, well, brain causes consciousness. And so you're saying, wait, the, the, the cause of consciousness may not correlate here. Right. So it might be that there's an alternative explanation to explain this correlation. And what might that be? Because we know there's a relationship. And it, it might be along the lines of what you, you mentioned, and I have a whole chapter on this in the book as well, which is to view the brain as being like a filtering mechanism for consciousness. And an analogy uh, to simplify it is to say, imagine consciousness is like the sun and our thoughts and the things that kind of block our pure consciousness are clouds. Our brain is kind of like a clouding mechanism. And when the brain becomes less functional, it's like the clouds go away and there's more consciousness experienced. The near-death experience is a great example of that, where people report these ultra-real experiences during a time in which there is almost no brain functioning and sometimes no brain functioning at all. It's like the brain is actually blocking our pure consciousness and limiting it rather than producing it. That's just so brilliant. And people can really get into that analogy because we can think of getting in an airplane and it's all overcast and raining when the airplane takes off. And that's like our the way our brain works in everyday, in our seeming everyday reality Absolutely. on a relative level. And then it breaks through the clouds and suddenly there is unlimited visuals. You can just see for unlimited amount of time, space, as far as the eye can see, and you're in the light. Uh, so that we, we have an experience of that. We can really relate to that in some way. So that takes me to the idea of consciousness and separation. So that's a big deal, too, that there is no separation Maybe. Well, let's just help us to understand that concept. It's a tough one to wrap our heads around. And I think there are limitations uh, that are imposed on us based on our biology. We can only comprehend so much, like the concept of infinity. We all accept that as being a real thing, but we can't really gra grapple with it. We can't, we can't explain it <laughs> very well. And I think that's, that might be what's happening here with the picture of reality that I think is likely to be real, which is that not only is consciousness not produced by the brain, but in fact, consciousness is the basis of reality and that we're all connected as part of the same stream of consciousness, so to speak. So to return to Dr. Bernardo Castrup again, he has an analogy which says, imagine that reality is like a stream of water where water represents consciousness and each of us is like a whirlpool within that stream meaning we're all made of consciousness, but we have these kind of artificial delineations that separate us. So it seems like we're separate. And maybe that's like our, our brain-body mechanism. It gives us only a limited lens into the reality, but fundamentally we are interconnected. 
Yeah, that's that one is is tough because I see you as a separate being. When, with my eyes, I could reach out and touch you and say, "Oh, well, we're really separate." But going back to the idea that if consciousness is fundamental and matter is derived of consciousness, the idea that well, here's another complex one that we make up matter by our consciousness. I'm I'm not saying that very eloquently, but we'll we'll get into that in just one moment if we can. Uh, I'm here with Mark Gober, and we're talking about the end of upside down thinking, which is the title of his book. And his website is Mark Gober G O B E R Mark Gober. Dot com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Mark Gober, and he is the author of An End to Upside-Down Thinking. Mark, we're talking about not being separate and creating matter through our consciousness, and maybe it matter doesn't exist <laughs> except through our perception that it does help us with that. I think that's really the key point, perception, that the world that we experience is one through the lens of our perceptual systems through our eyes, our ears, our nose, our mouth, sense of touch, um, we, we know those are limited. We know, for example, that the eyes only show us a sliver of the electromagnetic spectrum. There's all kinds of light that we don't see. X-rays, infrared light, our eyes don't show us that. So we just should remember that our eyes are, are a limitation in many ways. But when we think about our own experience and people who I mentioned in the book, like Rupert Spira, really get into this idea Everything is inherently subjective. We, uh, we view reality as being out there, that there is an objective world that exists independently of any consciousness. And that's exactly what I'm challenging. But if we look even at our own experience, how do we experience the objective world? We experience it through our own lens of consciousness. We experience the objectivity subjectively. So when we really get into it, it's we kind of have to reverse our perceptual system, which shows us an out there, and it's so convincing, and yet that perceptual system is something that we are subjectively experiencing. So I, I think you use uh, an example about touching your arm. Wait, help us with that. So yes. So the, if you think about t- like a tree is the is one example that I use. Um, if you touch a tree and think about where the experience of that sensation exists, it's existing within your consciousness. So if you kind of close your eyes and touch the tree, you realize it's just a sensation. And the same thing with hearing something. It's a, sensa- it's a, it's a sensation that is occurring within your consciousness. Your body and your thoughts, basically everything material is some kind of an experience that you're having right here, right now within your field of consciousness, which your body and your perceptual system has developed an interpretation for, which says, oh, that is a tree that I'm touching. 
and we're, we're so quick to register that. But really, it's just an experience. We love to name things. <laughs> yeah, we love to name things. But if we get b- back to the simplest version of what's occurring, it's always a, an experience within our own consciousness. So even memory is the same thing. It, it's just in our consciousness. It's yes, thoughts. Thoughts. So let's get into, I know that you give so many examples within your work and within this book. And you even... you. You even talk about how probably more than 30 prestigious universities have done all sorts of experiments in parapsychology or in this kind of phenomenon, whether it's, it's remote viewing or near-death experience or telekinesis or telepathy or any of these things. The, and these experiments have been replicated. But... Um, they're still not accepted as valid somehow. I, it just boggles the mind. Uh, like, for example, somebody that we've interviewed many times, Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. And he has done many extraordinary experiments. And yet he's been derided in many ways. I think Richard Dawkins is one person that has just taken it upon himself to just sort of negate uh, the work of, of Rupert Sheldrake. And So tell us about that and what's going on. And even if you look up in Wikipedia how there's a bias there. So tell us about that. It's an, it's an amazing dynamic that I was not aware of. Um, because as I got into the research, I was wondering, how is it that there's so much evidence and I've never heard of it? And I studied psychology. We never talked about these things. There was a lab at Princeton University where I went to undergrad. Run by, it was a lab run by the former dean of engineering for 27 years that was going on while I was there and I didn't know it existed. They studied these phenomena like psychokinesis, mind on affecting matter, remote viewing. So there is a real bias to, I, I think sweep these things under the rug or regard them as being fallacious in some way or some kind of a, like the, the, the experiments aren't done properly. And that's the kind of rhetoric that one might read if you look up psychokinesis or telepathy on Wikipedia. What I'm learning is that there is a momentum against these phenomena. And I, I'm not exactly sure what, if there's a single reason for it or maybe just many. And one reason might be that we are challenging here many paradigms. We're challenging the materialist paradigm with the reality of these phenomena. Materialism would predict that these things are impossible. So for those who have spent entire careers saying that the universe works in a materialistic fashion, these are, are big challenges. And so there might be just a, a, a tendency for one to reject evidence that doesn't conform to one's existing beliefs. So we may be in a period of time, just like in Galileo's time, when he said, hey, the earth is not the center of the universe. And people just laughed at him or refused to even let him show how that's true or look through the telescope. And so here we are in that kind of major as it's been described, Copernicus shift in scientific thought. It, I think we're at that, it's that level of uh, revolution where it's such a big shift in thinking that there is a resistance. And with Galileo, he had all of his evidence in his telescope and there were clergymen that didn't want to look in the telescope. So I think there is a bit of that dynamic happening right now where, there, where people don't want to look in the telescope. 
And there's there's very little funding then, therefore, available for this research, even though it does go on. And you've that's what you pulled out in your book. So so much of it. And and if somebody said debunks it as okay, some of this is false and it's it's not good science. But with so many universities participating and so many very, very respected scientists participating and the replication of so many experiments, um, it's hard to say, wait, there's a conspiracy that all these people are coming up with, with bad science here? That's my reasoning as well. And I think we're starting to see slight momentum. So, for example, the American Psychological Association's journal, The American Psychologist, published an article in 2018 by uh, Dr. Etzel Cardenia, which looks at the accumulated evidence for these phenomena and shows that there is a statistical effect beyond what chance would predict. This is a mainstream peer-reviewed journal that accepted the article. I don't think many people necessarily know about this. Uh, but that might start to catch on. And I'll, I'll give you a good example. Um, I received an email recently of a college student at a prominent U.S. university who was attending a lecture on science by a prominent scientist. The whole lecture was on how beliefs in ESP and things like it are totally bogus and that there's no evidence at all. And the student actually had read my book and stood up in class and said, are you familiar with the studies that have been done by the many universities that you just mentioned? And he said he wasn't aware of the studies. So I think what's happening in some cases is maybe it's not malicious. It's right. it's just not knowing that there is even evidence because it's been so swept under the rug. And I'm hoping with with studies like Dr. Cardenia's, it will start to get out there. Well, even let's say like, all right, let's go to healthcare and the study of epigenetics and DNA and genes and changing our genes and uh and affecting our health through uh, meditation and that sort of thing. So this is really coming down to where people are physically affected. And there are enough people that are taking in this information and they're starting to behave in different ways, even even looking at their belief systems and how and their sense of stress and so forth and how it affects their body. Seems to me like that might help to move this along. I agree with you. I think when it gets to one's personal well-being, people start to pay attention. And Dr. Bruce Lipton has been a pioneer in this area of looking at the effect of, of the mind and our beliefs on our physical health. And what we're learning more and more is that the mind plays a real effect on the physical world. It has a, it has a role to play, which is not what would be predicted by the conventional models. Of materialism. Exactly. Under that model, the brain produces consciousness. Consciousness has no effect on anything physical. Exactly. There you go. So um, I, I know that you've uh, mentioned Dean Radin, Dr. Dean Radin of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and uh, who has also been a, a guest on New Dimensions many times. And, and uh, say something about and the entanglement and and his double slit uh, experiments. Yes. So he's been a real pioneer as well. And those are two separate topics, and they're both really important. Yes. One is the concept of entanglement, which to simplify it, it's, a, it's an idea in quantum physics where you have two physically distant particles. So one's here, one's very far away in space and time. And when you affect one, the other one is affected at the same instant as if there's an instantaneous connect, invisible connection. 
Einstein didn't like this. He called it spooky action at a distance. <laughs> he did acknowledge it, and but so that's when he gave it that that term. I love that term, spooky action at a distance. But he didn't explain it, but he did acknowledge it. He acknowledged it. But the reason he didn't like it is that he thought the speed of light was the fastest that anything could travel. And yet here we have an instantaneous reaction, which is faster than the speed of light. And at a distance that these things just change, if they were once associated, then they're always associated and they just flip and change it's totally, Immediate. immediately. And it's, and it's not, it's counterintuitive, but there seems to be some kind of an invisible connection. And people like Dr. Dean Radin have, have maybe said, well, it could apply to the mind. So Dean Radin wrote a book called Entangled Minds, which could explain psychic phenomena potentially through this concept of entanglement. And now tell us about his double slit uh, in uh, experiment. This is a really, really important one. The double slit experiment, to simplify what the implications of it are, is when the observer is looking at the experiment, a particle behaves differently. Just by the act of observing, the particle behaves like a particle, whereas when no one is looking at it, it behaves like a wave of probabilities, meaning it's maybe here, maybe there. That's not like a particle that has a definite location. So this has boggled the minds of physicists for a long time. What is causing this? Well, how, how is it possible that the particle's behaving differently just depending on whether or not someone's observing it? And some people have said, well, consciousness plays a role. And there's a whole group of quantum physicists who say it's because of consciousness. And others say, well, there are other explanations that it's, it's not a consciousness. So Dean Radin has decided to study this where he asked people to put their mind to the experiment at a distance. So he's isolating the variable of consciousness. The only thing that's changing is that someone is putting their mental attention to the machine at a distance or not. And what he's found is that there is a very slight but highly statistically significant effect on the experiment, on whether it behaves like a wave or a particle, which is completely brilliant. And I think this is the kind of thing that should win a Nobel Prize if it's replicated. Exactly. Exactly. I think the first time I, I heard this concept that the observer will have an effect on what is observed uh, was years ago with Fridjof Capra, who is also a physicist and wrote the book, The Tao of Physics. And I remember when he first mentioned it, it just like boggled my mind. And I thought, oh, okay. This is very interesting. This has implications on many, many levels. I'm here with Mark Gober, and he is the author of An End to Upside-Down Thinking, Dispelling the Myth that the Brain Produces Consciousness and the Implications for Everyday Life. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Mark Gober. He's the author of a, just an extraordinary collection of research and information about a new paradigm in science, that consciousness is at the ground level of it all. And uh, it's it, the book is called An End to Upside-Down Thinking, Dispelling the Myth that the brain produces consciousness in the implications for everyday life. So, Mark, I'd like to talk about the implications for everyday life. So what does this mean for us if, if, uh, if we really start to take in and start to really understand that consciousness is the fundamental source of the universe rather than matter. Uh, what, do, what does that mean for us? Well, for me, one of the biggest shifts has been in how I view life and death and meaning. Uh, the conventional perspective, as we discussed, says once the brain dies, it's over. So life is finite, has a finite period, and there's no real meaning beyond what you can rationalize. What we see in what I think the evidence points toward is, is the notion that consciousness isn't dependent on the body. And therefore, when the body ceases to function, the consciousness itself does not die. So that has huge implications for how we think about everything. If, if this life is just kind of an experience of consciousness that is temporary as this experience, but not the end of consciousness itself, then I think we might recontextualize our lives. And maybe if we have a fear of death that, that is deep in our subconscious or maybe not deep in our subconscious, maybe we wouldn't fear death as much. And then how might we live if we don't think death is the end? For me, that's been transformative, and I think it's still working its way through my system. But for many people that I've spoken with, it really shifts things. Well, I noticed that uh, I've been privileged and honored to be at the death of several loved ones and to, and to be with them in that moment as they pass on. And the doctors might describe, oh, death is, oh, they're going to die in this terrible way, and it's going to be awful, and I, you know, they're just give all these warnings. But the people that I have experienced this phenomenon with, uh, they all had a kind of uh, philosophy that life does go on, that for somehow they are just holding it in a different way. They, they didn't go into their dying in a fearful way. And all of those deaths were really easy. That transition was just so easy. And then I hear other people talking about how people who are afraid of death and think, okay, this is the end of it all. I remember years ago, Michael said, when B.F. Skinner, of the Skinner, the psychologist of Skinner Box and everything, I think it was B.F. Skinner, who said he didn't believe in, in consciousness going on after death. And I remember Michael, I remember exactly where I was when he said this. We were just going across the Golden Gate Bridge and at the toll booth, and Michael said, boy, isn't he going to be surprised? He had just died, and, and Michael said, boy, isn't he going to be surprised? And that's just an idea of that consciousness does go on, and those of us that maybe resist that might have a harder time letting go of this physical incarnation. Absolutely. And if we go back to the analogy of the sun and the clouds, it's like the death of the physical body is a release of many of the clouds that are blocking us from perceiving this broader reality. 
And we see it in the near-death experience where people are hovering over their bodies and experiencing unconditional love and, and generally, not always, but generally very positive things during this time of, of almost no bodily function. That might give us a window into what happens when we die. We can't say for sure because the person didn't actually die, but we, we see a generally very pleasant experience. Um, one experience that really has stuck with me is known as the life review that people talk about in the near-death experience where they're seeing their whole life in a flash. They're judging themselves for how they acted towards people. They're not judging themselves for how much money they made or what kind of car they drove. It's how they treated other people. And sometimes events that seemed insignificant were actually very significant in the life review. In some cases, the life review is experienced through the eyes of those that the person affected. So let's say Bob is in a near-death experience having his life review. He recalls an event where he was really mean to someone named Sarah. He might have experienced that event through Sarah's eyes in the life review, comes back into his body after he's resuscitated, and, and typically is forever changed. So if this is a glimpse into what happens after physical death, it, it not only provides a potentially happy picture of, of consciousness post-physical life, but it also provides a new perspective on meaning. That reminds me of a just fabulous movie that I'll tell you about and our listeners if you haven't seen it. It's an older movie in the 90s with Meryl Streep and Albert Brooks, and it's called Defending Your Life. And it's all about that life review. She has a great life, and she just has done all these wonderful things, and then he has not such a great life. He hasn't lived it so great. And it's just... It's just a wonderful take on that life review that you were just talking about. And I'm, I'm just thinking also, Mark, when, when you talk about all of these life reviews and near death and everything, what about certain um, psychic mediums that are able to talk to people who have already died? Or, and they say something about that, and, and that's an interesting phenomena. Well, if we accept consciousness as being the fundamental medium of reality, it's not dependent on a body, then it would make sense, at least conceptually, that one could communicate with that form of consciousness or that sliver of consciousness that is no longer in a body. And that's what the evidence seems to suggest as well. And there have been many cases, some dating back to the 1800s, of people who had an ability to really communicate with the deceased in ways that we cannot explain but more recently, and I think this is maybe some of the more compelling scientific stuff for those who want to see studies, is the Winbridge Research Center has been studying mediums. These are people who claim they can communicate with the deceased under controlled quintuple blind conditions, so five levels of blinding, where the medium is over the phone speaking to the researcher, and all the medium gets is the first name of the deceased person. The researcher over the phone then asks a series of questions, and what the studies show is that the medium is able to get information about that deceased person just by knowing the first name beyond what chance would predict. So that's, that says something is going on beyond that materialist science there, right there. And I'm also thinking about people who... Um, do, and Larry Dossie has worked with this, and others have worked with this. And I remember when I first met Michael, my partner, more than 45 years ago, uh, he, he was working with something called mind dynamics, 
which was a precursor to the EST, and even Werner Erhard was part of that whole thing. And what he was doing at the time was doing remote healing, and he would sit down, and I would watch him do a session where he'd sit down. He wouldn't know the person he was healing or working with, and he would do this whole healing session with someone remotely, and it, it seemed to have some sort of effect. So it, it, that's another one where we can, we can actually think of a person and actually send. We talk about, oh, I'll send you healing energy, you know, but we actually can do that. Yeah, there seems to be evidence for this phenomenon. It's known as energy healing, and it depends on who the healer is, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't seem to work. But there have been some studies that I mentioned that in the book that have been done at places like Penn State, and uh, some, some credible people seem to show that the mental intentions of a person can have an effect on another person's physical form. Which, again, it kind of makes sense if we buy into this idea that consciousness is primary. If we shift the consciousness, then it would make sense that the physical material could also shift, including the body. What about, let's say, group meditation? Let's say a group takes a particular moment in time and they decide that they will all focus on some sort of world peace or something. Has that been, have there been any studies on that and has that been effective in any way? I have heard of some studies that seem to show a correlation between group meditation and world events. It is difficult, of course, to isolate what is causing the shift because there's so many variables. What's happening in the world? Is it because of that uh, meditation group or are there other variables that are causing the shift in the world? But I think some of the studies done uh, by the researchers from Princeton University, they have a, a program called the Global Consciousness Project, which has random number generators distributed around the world. So these are machines that spit out zeros and ones in a random fashion. What they find is that when there's a major global event in which they think people would have an emotional response to, like 9-11 or Princess Diana's death, those machines start to behave non-randomly. So the, pe <laughs> the people aren't even necessarily aware that there is a machine. This is just what's happening to the machines based on a world event. They, so they look at what happens to the machines under typical situation where there's no major event, and then they compare it to the string of zeros and ones when there is a major event. There seems to be a statistical effect where it's maybe slightly more ones than zeros. So people's emotional bodies and their, or their emotional makeup or chemistry or whatever that is, is focused on the same thing at the same time worldwide and an inordinate amount of ones that would not come up otherwise. Exactly. And it takes some math to do that, to look at the statistics to see that there's a difference. But oh, it's, yeah. Mark, we are out of time. I can't stand it. We've just, we've just barely touched this. So I've just been enjoying our conversation so much with Mark Gober, and he's the author of An End to Upside-Down Thinking, Dispelling the Myth that the Brain Produces Consciousness and the Implications for Everyday Life. And in order to know more about him and his work, his podcasts, and anything else you want to know, uh, look for his resources on his website, Mark Gober, G-O-B is in boy, G-O-B-E-R dot com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, New Dimensions 
org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3664. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.